we were in New Zealand one time arguing about the pronunciation of Isaiah, and one of the one of the Kiwis they pronounce it like the Brits do. He said, "Well, do you say how do you say Jeremiah?" Um, there were a couple of others, and they were all the Ayah. So I thought, yeah, well, he's got a point, Isaiah. Yeah. All right, we're going to begin reading in verse 13 of chapter 52 and read through the end of chapter 53. Listen to the word of God. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. What had not been told them, they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and will declare his generation. For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth." Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. O Lord, would you help us now to understand this passage for the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Many modern, we're looking at verse 10. Many modern translations render the words properly, but choose an English term that softens the blow of the prophet's message. They will say things like, it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. I want to talk about this. The authorized version and the New King James version that I've just read from render this in this way. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The New American Standard Bible puts it like this. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The Hebrew verb that is used here clearly carries with it the sense of will or purpose. Thus, the modern translations are not incorrect. 
But it means, the word carries the sense of will or purpose in the context of something that pleases or delights. And both of these ideas are present here at the beginning and at the end of the verse. Listen again. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now these are startling words. If they were found anywhere else in literature, they would shock our deepest sensitivities. Just change the nouns and pronouns ever so slightly. Let me give you some. It pleased the teacher to bruise the student. It pleased the husband to bruise his wife. It pleased the policeman to bruise the citizen. It pleased the father to bruise the child. These words, put in this way, raise our anger. Our sensitivities take over. We want to help the abused victim, and rightly so. The text says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Here in the most famous of the servant passages of Isaiah the prophet, we are urged to contemplate the servant as the Lord's servant. There's a Puritan-era exposition of the whole of this passage that's called Isaiah's Crucifix because it is a vivid portrait of the brutal sufferings of the one described here. Listen to the language that speaks of his sorrows. It is graphic and it is frequent. Here are the words. Despised. Rejected. Stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, crushed, chastised, stripes, oppressed, slaughter, judgment, cut off, offering, put to grief, anguish, poured out. I wonder, are we desensitized to these words? Do we hear them and comprehend the horror as they cascade upon our minds? You know, every time I read that that half a paragraph and all of those words, I want it to stop. I don't want to keep hearing those words. And yet the text says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now we've said that the phrase conveys two things. It conveys plan or purpose and it speaks to us of pleasure. We need to consider each of these. We need to wrestle with them. First off, let's take the easy one, the word plan. The prophet's choice of this word at the beginning and at the ending of verse 10 sets the servant's sufferings into an eternal context, and that context is the covenant of redemption. Now, time doesn't permit us to look at some other passages in Isaiah. If you're taking notes, uh, notice especially Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, which presents to us the servant and the servant in the context of the eternal purpose, the covenant of God from eternity. And so we could legitimately translate the, the verse the way that many of the modern translations do. It was the will of the Lord. 
Now, once again, as we saw this morning, this word Lord is written for us in all upper caps. You remember what that tells us. This is the covenant name for God. The eternal, faithful, triune God proposes to do this. It is his will. It is his purpose. That's what it says. But then think about the rest of it. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. This was the eternal purpose of God. Isaiah firmly states that the sufferings of the servant are the great activity of this eternal purpose. You know, the apostolic preachers declared this boldly. For example, Acts 2.23. This Jesus, this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There Peter saw the eternal purpose of the Lord in the death of his son. You know what? That's familiar territory, and it's comfortable, isn't it? We can all say, yes, that's great. Hallelujah. And then we read, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is more difficult. It's a legitimate sense of the word. There are some who argue that the Christian doctrine of substitution, which is what we have here, is equivalent to divine child abuse. That this text implies that. That the Father in heaven gleefully poured out his wrath upon his Son on earth. Is that right? Of course not. Never. But let's wrestle with this. Let's be honest with it. And so what do we say? How do we handle this language that when we change the nouns and the pronouns becomes so frightening to us? What do we do? Brothers and sisters, we we can't wink at this or blink. We can't blink our eyes and pretend it's not there. That's what the text says. So what do we say? Well, we can respond in two ways. We, We need to think through it carefully in two ways. And these two ways help us immensely. The first is the teaching of the verse as a whole. Now, I've been focusing attention on the beginning of the verse. Let's read the entirety of verse 10 again. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure, same word family, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. When we look at this text, this verse as a whole, And when we set it into the entirety of the context, we notice that there's something very important going on. That the one who is described here is a sin offering, but not for his own sin. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We know these words so well, and they're true of us. We're like the sheep that have escaped from the pen and are walking in danger, doing our own thing. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He encountered the wrath of God. Wrath requires a sacrifice, a propitiation. And the one who is described here is the one who gives himself as a propitiation to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. We see in verse 5, language, he sees his offspring. That's, that's, I'm sorry, that's in verse 10. He sees his offspring, his elect people. And he knows as he endures this bruising or crushing, 
which is another way that that word could be rendered. He knows that his suffering is for the benefit of his elect people. This is where verse 5 comes in. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised. That's our word from verse 10. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. In verse 12, we learn that his days are prolonged. This is a reference to his resurrection from the dead. Even in the face of death, he will be raised for our justification, as Paul says. And at the end of verse 10, we read this phrase, the pleasure, pleasure of the Lord, pleasures of the Lord, I'm sorry, the pleasure of the Lord prospers in his hands. I'm getting those two P words and the S's on the end mixed up. He accomplishes all that the Lord sends him to do. And we need to remember that this is an eternal pleasure, not a temporal pleasure, not a sudden response to the events of the cross. This person, this sacrifice, was not in the wrong place at the wrong time and God pours out his wrath upon him. Rather, his sufferings and his death, central to this passage, are the means of bringing the eternal saving purpose of God into history. And it is all accomplished, and he himself is satisfied. He gladly and willingly goes to the cross on our behalf. It is said of him, I delight to do your will, O my God. He knew what was before him, and he was happy to do so. But there's a second way that we need to respond to this charge, a second way we need to think about this, and that's by setting it into the context of Christian theology as a whole, the analogy of faith, we could call it. We need to remember the Trinitarian nature of the purposes and will of God. The natural inclination that we have on reading this is to separate the persons and to think that one acts upon another. That is, that the Father acts upon the Son. But the reality is that along with the Spirit, the persons of the Trinity act together. And we can say it is as much the pleasure of the second person of the Trinity to suffer God's wrath as it is the first person, the Father, or the third person, the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of inseparable operations that the external acts of the Trinity are one. We, we read this of the Son and we think of the Father in heaven, forgetting that the Son is in heaven in his divine nature, pouring out wrath in a sense upon himself. To separate the persons is to misunderstand at best, or at worst, to reject Trinitarianism. See, Christ is one person with two natures, divine and human. His divine nature from eternity, along with Father and Spirit, purposed to atone for sins, to propitiate righteous wrath, and to redeem his people by means of the suffering of the God-man. It's a little, little doctrine with a funny name that's really important, though. Translated into English, it's called the Calvinistic Extra. And it was the view that was held by the Calvinists, like us, that Christ's deity was never diminished in the incarnation. That his deity is as real in heaven, if we can speak in those terms, while he's incarnate on earth as it is before 
the incarnation itself. In the incarnation, the person of the Son, who is truly man and truly God, endures a life of suffering from the moment of the incarnation and his birth. We call that his passive obedience, culminating in the cross, and he does this for the sake of the redemption of his people. See, he's not the victim. In a sense, he is also actively involved in bringing wrath upon himself in the eternal purposes of God. He is himself glad to bring salvation to his people, to satisfy the demands of justice, to bring our redemption. There was no one to come to his aid. He suffered alone. But you see, together, both the context and the theological testimony of all scripture assist us to understand what is happening in this place. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. The eternal purpose of God, his eternal pleasure, not a momentary response to an action in time, not, as I said, because Jesus was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not an incident in which the father gleefully tortures his son, as some want to characterize it, but rather this is an eternal pleasure. Unchanging, undiminished love for the elect, shared by Father, Son, and Spirit, so that the Lord, the one God who is three and the three who are one, purpose in good pleasure to accomplish our redemption by means of the incarnation of the Son. His life of suffering, culminating in the horror of the cross, Father, Son, and Spirit are eternally pleased to bring forgiveness to sinners who believe in his Son. So the gospel message is, do you believe in the Son? God himself provides redemption through the Son. And if the Lord is pleased with the atonement of the Son, why aren't you? See, why aren't you? If God himself is pleased with this. Do you contemplate the eternal pleasure of God accomplished in the crushing of his son? See, the Lord bruised the beloved son so that we might be healed, so that we might be redeemed, so that we might enjoy the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting in the presence of the greatest being that there could be, God himself. Christian believer, I ask you the question, when you contemplate this, do you love him? We love him because he first loved us. And that's in the middle of a context speaking about propitiation and the sacrifice that Christ makes on our behalf as he turns away the wrath of God. When you contemplate his bruises, don't don't think in a morbid way uh, about a crucifix don't think about the, the thorns, the nails, the, the agony. Don't, I don't mean that. But when you think about his death, know that he took these things so that you might be forgiven. You have a perfect Savior who has been wounded for you. You may trust in him. This is not divine child abuse. This is redemption. This is our forgiveness. It's not based in our acts, it's based in his atonement. And without him, we have no hope. You see, we read Isaiah 53.10, and we have to say this, because it pleased the Lord to bruise him, 
you and I have an eternal hope. And we must live with this truth before our minds and never forget it. It must energize our lives and become the constant theme of who and what we are. And even when we come to the Lord's table in a few moments, we can say, thanks be to God for the indescribable gift of his son. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, once again, we are deeply moved by your grace and mercy. Thank you for the incarnation, for the condescension of the eternal person of the Son who took upon himself our humanity in order that he might suffer so that we would be forgiven. We give you praise. We give you thanks. We ask you to send your spirit to us that he might move us more and more to demonstrate our love to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.